closing in um, on the darkest moment in human history right now. And for many of us who have been following along with the events of Holy Week, uh, which have been mirroring Jesus's last week on earth, um, this has been a sad, it's been a heavy week as, as we remember. Some of us may be experiencing for the first time what Jesus endured as a man in the flesh um, in order to fulfill God's plan of restoring us and justifying us for him. Let me challenge you with this. As we're here tonight, we cannot experience the joy of Sunday morning if we cannot grasp the despair of tonight. If we cannot understand the darkness of this moment in history, we will not appreciate the hope that comes on Sunday. And so for those of us who are here, those of us who are joining us on the live stream, this is a moment where it is critical to be leaning in, to be listening, to be allowing yourself to feel some of these emotions as we walk through this together. The despair and the darkness that surrounds this moment is because of the way that Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, suffered for you and for me. As we work our way through this final passage in Matthew 27, I want to draw your attention really to three ways that Jesus suffered for us. Wouldn't it be the first time that he suffered in these ways? But these are the primary ways that he'll be experiencing pain for us. Three ways that the author of Hebrews had in mind when he said that Jesus endured the cross. This is what Jesus is going through. And so in these final moments, we're going to see Jesus suffering physically. We're going to see Jesus suffering emotionally. And we're going to see Jesus suffering spiritually. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he did not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. After Jesus is betrayed by his closest brothers, brother, after he's arrested like a criminal, after he's tried unfairly and he has to endure slanderous accusations against him, after he's spit on, after he's beaten, after he's unjustly condemned, after he's viciously flogged, Jesus walks as a broken and humiliated man to a putrid place of death where the worst criminals go to die, a pitiful death outside. This place is called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And this, as if it wasn't enough already, uh, what he's endured, as we've walked through it tonight, is nothing compared to what he's about to experience. Matthew here is almost insultingly brief in his description, condensing this terrible experience of Jesus' horrific torture by crucifixion to a mere fact without really any description. 
And part of this might be because his own reluctance to relive some of the, the grisly detail. Um, this is really only my speculation. In reality, it's most likely because a crucifixion was something that did not need any description um, or use of imagination for the people who would have heard this in that context. Now, as people would hear this, they, they, they would understand what it meant to be crucified. It was a purposefully public and gruesome form of torture that everyone in first century Palestine would be able to understand as, as it's referenced. But here, now, this is not first century Palestine. So I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. Crucifixion originated in Persia. Uh, and historically, the significance of, of raising a body off of the ground was because the person being killed was seen as so vile, so disgusting in their crime, that they didn't want their body to defile the earth that everyone else walked on. They were so unclean as, as, as to not even be able to have the dignity of being buried in the ground. Crucifixion was then later on adapted by the Romans as a means of, of torturous execution with the specific purpose of maximizing the amount of agonizing pain that a person would go through while at the same time prolonging that experience of death for as long as possible. The, the scourging of Jesus' back was not just a form of capital punishment in and of itself, it was actually a very sadistic preparation for his crucifixion. So as a person is crucified on the cross, the main point of contact was their back as it rubbed up and down on the wooden cross with each labored breath that the victim took. The wounds that were inflicted during the scourging would be pressed against, they would grind and rub on the wood, reopening, causing incredible discomfort, again, with every single breath that the victim would take. Large nails would be driven through the palms of the hands of the victim, causing excruciating pain, severing the median, uh, the, the median nerve right inside of the palm. It, it would have made your, your, your hands and your wrists and your arms feel like fire would be shooting up them, and it wouldn't stop. Once the person would be hoisted up into the position of crucifixion itself, that would bring the most pain, and it would be the cause for the eventual death of the person. It was the position. So when you're hanging in this position with all of your body weight, you cannot breathe. What's happening is your, your frame is elongating. The full weight of your body is pulling down on your diaphragm. It's stretching out your chest so your muscles are, are actually expanded and you're stuck breathing out. You can't breathe in. You put your arms up like this and you, you naturally take a breath in, but it's hard to release that breath. The only way that you could take a breath would be to, to hoist yourself up on, on your exhausted, often dislocated arms and shoulders, bearing up your weight on the nails that would be driven into your hands, scraping open those wounds that are on your back, and you would gulp down what little oxygen you could, and then you would collapse just as breathless as you would be when you first began. Crucifixion was designed so that every single breath that you took cost you incredible pain and brought you one step closer to your death. 
That was the purpose of crucifixion. As you're thinking about this, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, good. It should. It should make you pause every time you look at a cross. We put crosses everywhere. We wear them as jewelry. We put them on the sides of buildings. We put them on bookmarks. We put them on bumper stickers, which is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But Mercy House, do not forget that the cross is a symbol of horrific torture. That's what we've chosen as our symbol to remind us of what is most important about our faith, which is the cost of the grace that we receive in Christ. The symbol of, of torturous death. I mean, it's like wearing a guillotine on your necklace or an electric chair on your necklace, except for those two forms of execution are, are actually humane when you compare it to the cross. Roman, the Roman statesman Cicero said of crucifixion, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is an act of wickedness. To execute him is almost murder. What shall I say of crucifying him? An act so abominable, it is impossible to find any word adequately to express. Jesus suffered physically. And when he was offered, as was customary, a mix of wine and gall, would, which, which would actually help dull the pain, it would induce a bit of a narcotic high, Jesus refused it. Instead, Jesus chose to suffer the physical pain of the cross in its entirety. I don't know about, um, about you, when I think of the most ideal way to die, I don't think about this a ton, and I think if you were to poll most people, the most common response is peacefully in your sleep. This is the most opposite end of the spectrum, what you can imagine the ideal way to die. It is literally on the other side of that spectrum. But it wasn't just what he suffered physically, he also suffered emotionally. So I'm going to read on, starting in verse 36. Then they sat down and kept watch over him, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus is hanging Naked, exposed, on the cross, agonizing, in pain. He's experiencing a, a, a degree of humiliation and shame that I don't think you or I would be able to relate to. He, he's suffering from feelings of fear and terror as he faces down his, his certain death. And, and it's coming one breath at a time. And as he's fighting with each of these excruciating breaths just to stay alive, he's being ridiculed. And he's being mocked, he's being made fun of as he's hanging there dying. 
The sign that the Romans made and placed over his head, declaring him the king of the Jews, this is not like a courtesy for him. It was a taunt. It's a flexing to show that Rome has the power and the authority to torture, humiliate, and kill this so-called king of the Jews. As he's hanging there, writhing in pain, people mock his divinity. You see this in verse 42. He saved others. He can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. People are seeing him and they begin mocking his faith and his trust that he has in God, his father. Verse 43 says, he, he, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. In these last moments, as he's filled with fear, shame, humiliation, all someone would want is just a look of compassion. Someone to look on him and just be able to somehow give him an ounce of sympathy or empathy for the situation that he's in, but he can't even have that. He's all alone, hanging naked on a cross, being tortured to death, being made a mockery of. And his friends and the ones that, that he loved have all abandoned him, and he's there about to die by himself. If it wasn't enough to die this humiliating death in a humiliating place, with no support. He's, he's sandwiched between two vile criminals. And I think this is maybe the worst part of all. Verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. There is no sympathy for Jesus. Even these robbers, the criminals beside him, mock him and ridicule him. Jesus at this point is physically broken, he is emotionally humiliated. And Jesus then experiences the worst thing that he could experience through the spiritual suffering of taking upon himself all the sins of mankind. Verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. The darkness over the land is not a metaphor here. Uh, between the hours uh, of, of noon and 3 p.m., it's recorded that there is this literal darkness uh, in these final hours of Jesus' life. It's important to note that this is not like a solar eclipse. Uh, solar eclipses last minutes, not hours. And solar eclipses are also impossible during a full moon, of which it was because the Passover is always held during a full moon. There are actually uh, many other secular historical accounts of a strange blocking of the sun during this time, which also was accompanied by an earthquake. The, the darkness that was experienced by everyone in the world during this moment was a reflection of the spiritual darkness of this moment. Jesus hangs on the cross, his life just hanging by a thread with each tiny gasp for air that he can take, humiliated, yet he is faithful 
to his purpose. And he desires only one thing, and that is to hear the voice of his dad. My, my girls are, uh, they're scared of spiders. They're scared of any, really any small thing with more than two legs that crawls around. And lately, they'll stand at the top of the stairs just outside their room, and they'll call out to me when they find a bug in their room. It's quite obnoxious, but also a little cute. And, and it, it isn't like a delay tactic for them. They're not trying to stay up a little bit later. They're not trying to even just see us. I can actually hear the, the genuine distress and the fear and the anxiety that's in their voice. They say, Daddy? And sometimes whether we're cooking, I'm working on something in, in a different room, I can't hear them right away. And so that anxiety, that fear in them starts to increase. And they'll say, Daddy? Maybe I still don't hear them. At this point, you can just imagine, like, their heart rate is increasing. They're starting to actually panic as something that's scarier than an ant is becoming a possibility. Maybe, maybe Daddy can't hear us right now. Maybe Daddy can't come. Maybe Daddy doesn't want to come. Maybe we're alone. Maybe there's, there's nobody out there that cares for us right now. Maybe he'll never come. And so they'll shout out, Daddy! But I'll hear them eventually. I hear them from the garage, two floors up, because they can be really loud. And I will bound up those stairs four at a time, and I'll swoop them both up into my arms. I'll take that spider and I'll bring it outside. I'll reassure them and hold them close and tell them that I love them, that it's going to be okay then I'm going to protect them. I'm not going to let a spider kill them, whatever they're afraid of. Then I'm not going to abandon them. That when they call my name, I'm going to come. When I hear that name, when they, hear, when they say, Daddy, there's nothing that's going to stop me if I can help it to get to my little girls to help them. And they'll feel reassured. They'll smile. They'll laugh. They'll play. And they'll continue on with their night. This is what Jesus wants for God the Father to swoop down in all his glory, in all of his majesty, to shut the mouths of those who are mocking him, to carry his son off of the cross and to hold him close and say that it's over, that he did it, that he doesn't have to be alone anymore, that, 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 that daddy is here, and that daddy is proud of his son for accomplishing what he was sent to do. But instead of this, Jesus suffers the spiritual reality of the most terrible and terrifying thing in existence, and that is the absolute silence of God. And in the only place in Scripture where Jesus refers to God without addressing Him as Father, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you deserted me? Why won't you rescue me? Don't you see me here? Don't you hear me calling out to you? Verse 50 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 